people say, oh, all social media is bad. is It's not social media is bad. Social media is just a tool. And a tool is as, only as useful or beneficial or detrimental depending on the intention and the actions of its user. Welcome to Candid Insights. I'm your host, Sahil Badruddin. And today we have with us Vajahad Ali, an op-ed writer at the New York Times and a senior fellow at the Auburn Seminary. This interview was published for Sacred Matters, Currents, and Culture. Vajahad, thank you for this interview. No, thank you for uh, having me on. I promise to pretend that I'm smart. Great. <laughs> So given your uh, extensive work with the media, I wanted to start by quoting a Pew Research study uh, done in 2016, which says six out of every 10 millennials get their political news on Facebook, making the 1.7 billion user social behemoth the largest millennial marketplace for news and ideas in the world. But within Facebook's ecosystem exists a warren of intellectual biomes created by users whose interest in interacting with opposing political views is nearly non-existent. So this study uh, indicates that social media platforms are becoming, you know, echo chambers and media bubbles where we only get or or rather fed news that we want to hear or agree with uh, that just reinforces our pre-existing perspectives. So as someone who works with and speaks about social media, what have you discovered about this issue? No, you're absolutely right. Uh, the irony was is that the social media platforms would allow us to to broaden our horizons and connect to a global audience with the swipe of our thumb on a smartphone. And instead, what we've seen is due to the algorithmic soup and our own subjectivity and human biases, uh, we instead uh, now live in a closed loop ecosystem digitally, which uh, informs us in a skewed way about how the rest of the world operates. Not only that, well, uh, studies have shown that social media usage also has increased polarization when it comes to politics in America. And this type of tribalization and extreme polari polarization is reflected in the current political landscape. It is also, we have seen, being exploited deliberately and at a very low cost by the enemies of America, right? So Russia, at a very low cost, used and abused Facebook and Twitter through bots and fake groups uh, to exacerbate existing racial and religious and political divisions. And what we've also seen is that extremists, white supremacists or ISIS, have used it as a playground for both recruitment and propaganda. And so when people say, oh, all social media is bad, is it's not social media is bad. Social media is just a tool. And that's why I try to keep reminding people. It's a tool. And a tool is only as useful or beneficial or detrimental depending on the intention and the actions of its user. Problem is, is that we unleash technology, but we don't spend time learning how to use it or spend time learning about the impact of our digital footprint. We just gobble it up. Snapchat, let me start snapping. WhatsApp, let me start WhatsApping. Instagram, let me start Instagramming. What are the consequences? What is it doing to society? You know. What information am I putting out there? Should I put information out there? And now what we really need and what we're seeing is we have to work backwards. We need, like, I, I say this and people laugh, but they don't laugh any, any longer. I say starting in elementary school, right next to English, you should be teaching digital literacy. And I would love it if um, this is really, like, baked into the curriculum. Digital literacy how to maintain an ethical digital footprint, how to use this technology, how to use it wisely, how to have security, how to, you know, how to promote civil dialogue, uh, how to intervene with, when it comes to bullying and trolling. I think right now it's still the wild, wild west. Uh, not only have I been working on social media as a journalist, but I also work with Facebook and Google in, in the private sector in, in coming up with ideas you know, on how to use these platforms for, for pluralism. And I can say that still in 2018, it's, People are still trying to figure this out. Uh, you know, people are really scratching their heads trying to figure this out because we know for a fact that Russia will use social media again to intervene in, in politics. We do know that it's still a base for recruitment. We do know that people are still using it in their, as their echo chambers. And what you have to do really is in the real world, we have to go like analog in a digital world. 
you literally now have to bust out of both your digital cocoons and your your suburban cocoon cocoons or urban cocoons and like do old school stuff like knock on doors and talk to people that in a weird way it might be like the savior of society like literally face to face conversations and interrupting uh other people's spaces both in the real world and the digital world uh but and i'm sorry for getting into such a philosophical answer here i'm sure you wanted like a really simple answer but this is kind of the the weighty stuff that we're dealing with and unfortunately it seems that social media which has been a tool for say like black lives matter you know it would not have gone to prominence without a social media or the arab spring or you know the highlighting into causes or the me too movement it also has this tremendous potential for divisions and exacerbating hatred and, and extremism and we really should get a handle on this very quick because right now it seems to be having a detrimental effect on the news on free press on quote unquote fake news uh, on extremism uh, on relationships you know I was talking to someone and I said remember back in the day you used to like have a disagreement with your homie and you'd be fine but now if you tweet something or facebook something and someone says something in the comments and they perceive your response as being disrespectful what happens that affects a real world relationship the virtual world has become the real world there's no really separation anymore and new media is media and so how do we put in ethics and guidelines and restrictions in the wild wild west let's see so in this case how can groups and individuals positively leverage social media like you said in this age where disinformation and misinformation is so prevalent it's you know it it really is going to be a deliberate conscious uh individual effort in the sense that people don't realize that we're no longer just consumers of news we're also publishers we're also curators every time you publish every time you share something on facebook or or, or twitter you're actually the middleman uh, uh you know publishing content uh sharing information and as such you how now have a responsibility um people need to be much more responsible just like when it comes to gossip or misinformation or lies i am i going to be a vehicle or a means through which disinformation lies a bullying or tro- trolling exists if not i have to check myself and and i know that sounds like I, i'm putting a burden on each of us but that is the burden like we do we have responsibilities in daily life right like everyone has jobs and we follow rules and there's certain norms i think with social media because of its instantaneous feedback loop you know swipe a thumb uh respond immediately um we kind of don't have that filter whereas I'll give you an example remember back in the day you had to sit down compose a letter you had to pick up a pen or a pencil it forced you to think it forced you to deliberate uh and then you used to put that in an envelope and stamp it and you're like hmm should i mail this i don't know now it's like ah you pissed me off response uh so it takes an individual responsibility here to do some vetting uh is this a legit story is the messenger legit should i share this number one number two would i say this to this person if they were standing in front of me if not maybe i shouldn't tweet it or facebook it number three i see someone getting bullied i have now an opportunity in the comment section to redirect this narrative and intervene and that's in that you've shown that when when a person kind of sets the stage through their action on a facebook feed it kind of pivots the conversation if that if that if this makes sense mm-hmm. um number 4 yeah and you know uh number 4 what is the impact of what's my digital footprint and how am i using it you know am i using it uh, to be negative or am i using it to be positive and i think social media again i'll i'll stress it it's a tool it depends on the intentions and actions of the users so it can be an exceedingly powerful tool to give otherwise excised marginalized voices a space at the global table i'll give you one quick example uh, a couple of years ago two years ago i believe uh, there was a tragedy uh, in north carolina where three young students were shot and killed uh, by uh, their neighbor uh, these were uh, muslim americans uh, dia yusur and uh, razan like a uh, husband and wife uh, and the wife's sister everyone knew the story this story was not covered by local news or national news the student and muslim community of north carolina took to social media uh, and did their own hashtag and facebook page urging people to pick up the story overnight a non story became a local story became a national story became an international trending story um as a result of that um you know the 
the global community, the national community rallied around these uh, three young, uh, uh, you know, students. And it, a tragedy became, in a strange way, a wake-up call to, uh, you know, Islamophobia. But also, the Dia was a practicing medical student. He was a dentist. He was about to go to Syria to help refugees. So, in his honor, uh, you know, you set up like a foundation, and the school set up funds. And so you saw tragedy transformed into something beneficial for a community, but that would not have happened without social media. Same thing with Black Lives Matter. Even though it's happening in the grassroots, it got amplified to an international level through social media. The Me Too movement, right? Or Time's Up, ditto. Uh, social media helped amplify and make it into an international reality. And then these pockets uh, that existed on the ground were able to unify and it has now become a, a movement both on the ground and in the digital space that is impacting and hopefully changing uh, a toxic uh, misogynistic culture all around the world, hopefully. Uh, so that's how you can use social media while at the same time being very vigilant and aware of the abuses of social media. With great power comes great responsibility, Sahil. With great power comes great responsibility. Right, Spider-Man. To quote Spider-Man. Just to step back a bit, do you find that even the mainstream media can be its own bubble, uh, a media bubble, if you will. Of course, look at the coverage of Donald Trump. And, uh, you know, really, I was critical, even though I was part of the media at the time, I was very critical of the coverage. I said, first and foremost, take him seriously and literally. They did not. Maybe because I'm a member of a minority group that he was assailing, or maybe because we're far more vigilant and attuned to racism and discrimination than, than others. You know, many of us took him literally and seriously. I, I went to the DNC. Uh, I was there during election night. I went to a Trump rally. Uh, you know, and, and the, it was a failure of the media to hold him accountable based purely on journalistic principles, right? Like old school tactics, confront him with his own words, confront him with his own record of racism, you know, ask him uh, to reconcile his misleading statements. Instead, they played this fair and balanced game where you concentrated on Hillary Clinton's emails and lumped in everything that Donald Trump said, right? There was emails versus everything. And also this free airtime coverage that CNN gave uh, Donald Trump uh, helped both CNN's ratings and did free publicity boost to Donald Trump. Uh, and so now you're seeing slowly but surely people in the media say we made a mistake. And Jeffrey Tubin, who writes for The New Yorker and is a CNN contributor, I think just two days ago, openly said that, uh, you know, I made a mistake. I regret the fact that we, we, we tilted the coverage in the way that we did. What we see with social media in particular, and in Facebook, is the, the leading news organizations, for lack of a better word, that dominated uh, the Facebook audience was Fox News. Number two was Breitbart. Breitbart is the outfit, or was the outfit, of Steve Bannon, who was the chief strategist of Donald Trump. Uh, they have very multicultural, tolerant, open-minded uh, columns like, uh, not even columns, but uh, uh, departments like black crime, not like focusing on like black men and women being killed, but no, black people doing crime. Just to give you a taste <laughs> of Breitbart, right? Uh, Anti-immigrant, anti-woman, anti-Muslim, anti-black. Breitbart had just as many, if you will, followers and views on Facebook through their uh, posts as did New York Times and the Washington Post. And so social media in particular, is used very successfully by the right wing and used very successfully by the Islamophobia industry. And as we've seen, was used successfully by Russia. Uh, and Russia deliberately was trying to both damage Hillary Clinton and hopefully trying to elect Donald Trump. They succeeded beyond their wildest dreams. Uh, you know, the use of Russian bots in Twitter. Now, finally, you know, uh, a New York Times article came out showing how uh, a company uh, basically uh, you can buy fake followers uh, from a company. Uh, once that, uh, there was a great piece that came out two days ago. Uh, now the company has magically like, you know, removed hundreds of thousands of followers. And we've seen that these Russian bots were used to amplify pro-Trump uh, messages and memes. And again, uh, white nationalism, you know, attacking Muslims, attacking black people. And so you saw a failure of both social media and mainstream media to hold this type of movement and ideology and personality accountable. And they fell prey to sensationalism 
And if they had amped up and done their job uh, a little bit uh, better, I would say, maybe, you know, Trump would not have been elected. And, uh, you know, it takes, unfortunately, uh, a failure of this proportion for people to do a self-audit. And that's what you're seeing Twitter and Facebook scrambling to do and also mainstream media. Not Fox News, which has gone full-on state propaganda, but, you know, you're, you're seeing now MSNBC and, you know, uh, CNN at least a little bit and, you know, a few other outlets being like, oh, uh, we messed up. Do you see... But, but at the same time, but at the same time, you know, it's not that much of a mess up because, look, uh, CNN in particular, there was a New York, uh, there was a New York Times huge piece where uh, Zucker, uh, who's running CNN, you know, he's friends with Donald Trump. And they admitted that they used to like talk during the campaign, uh, you know, give each other like, you know, you know, do like what, like biweekly talks and conversations. And so that should already make you like a little bit suspicious. Like what, why is the head of a major news network, buddy, buddy with a presidential candidate? Why are they chatting it up? Uh, you know, and so the type of drama that CNN has created uh, is kind of like this WWE type environment where, you know, Don Lemon gets pissed off. And then, you know, at a pro-Trump supporter and then he kicks him off the show. But then the, the guy nonetheless is paid by CNN and comes back a week later. Do you see what I'm saying? It's like it's 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 sensationalism and it, and it benefits both CNN and Donald Trump because Donald Trump is a creature of what? The media. And Donald Trump uh, without the media would not be Donald Trump. He's a man uh, who has perfected a certain image, which is hollow and devoid of reality. And he has played the media. He's played uh, TV, radio. He was a game show host. I mean, this guy is obsessed with television. That's his metric of success, ratings. How much are they talking about? Um, and so we saw the limits and failures of the mainstream media to hold their own creature that they have created responsible. Frankenstein broke out of the lab and played, you know, uh, burned the, the lab, if you will. Do you, do you see these kinds of media bubbles increasing? I do. I unfortunately do. Because as Fox News has gone, Fox News is the most watched cable news uh, network. Fox News has gone all in for Trump. It's almost become state propaganda, right? Um, the Republican Party has gone all in for Trump, uh, disaffecting many uh, conservative voters and many old school Republicans. So are you going to see the rise now, a splintered rise of like, you know, another group? Maybe it's going to be libertarians, maybe another version of conservatives. You see splintered splinters in the Democratic Party. Many people say, the Bidens and, and the uh, and the Clintons represent an old school centrist, uh, old money uh, power base. Well, we want something more radical. Uh, you see the splinters happening based on identity. You see the splinters happening based on gender. And social media will exacerbate this, unfortunately. It's not right now conducive to nuanced conversations it creates bubbles it creates hysteria it creates back and forth uh tit for tat uh uh attacks uh the call out cultural the call out culture has its benefits but also its limitations and these fractures that we're seeing in in, in uh, society will be mirrored and amplified in social media which will then feed back into society um at the same time a, a, a positive flip to this is the election of Trump and the very divisive agenda and ideology has also united so many different strands of communities that otherwise would not in engage or interact with, with the other, right? Uh, you see so many people carrying every, everyone else's water. Like, you know, we have the, the Women's March and then you have the Women's March intercepting with Black Lives Matter and then for DACA and immigrants, Asian Americans, uh, Muslim Americans, right? And, you know, a lot of white Americans say this is not, you know, this does not represent me or my people or my country. And so there is a huge opportunity here for us to actually unite around shared values and allow ourselves these spaces to be, you know, have the bubbles. But you have to you have to get into each other's spaces. That's the only way. And so it's fine. You know, it gives you this opportunity to say, listen, I don't feel represented and now I have a space where I can be, say, a Muslim online with other Muslims. Awesome. Well. Is that going to come at the cost of a of a cohesive society where you just double down and put your head in the sand and disagree with everyone or hide yourself from everyone who disagrees with you? You know, that's kind of the fear is the absolutism uh, is, is my fear here, where like perfect is the enemy of good. And these litmus tests that are created oftentimes on social media, if you've seen right, you have to be as left as me. And if you're not, you're a sellout. You have to be as right as me. If you're not, you're not a patriot.
this is something which I hope we can, based upon our real world community building and, and, and institutions and, and grassroots interactions, that can then be translated in the social media space that create uh, intersecting bubbles, if you will. We're like a Venn diagram of bubbles. Right now, we don't have Venn diagrams of bubbles. I hope that made sense. So today, this phenomenon has sometimes even been termed as a post-fact society where, you know, individuals not only feel entitled to their own opinions, but to their own facts. And so they're in these bubbles. But how do you think we can actually recognize uh, that we've wrapped ourselves in it? How do we break free from it? it is, it's it's going to take a deliberate, uh, conscientious effort to do it, number one. Uh, number two, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be twofold. Number one, Facebook and Twitter and, and uh, you know, the social media platforms have to be more uh, deliberate and wise in how the, the use and abuse of algorithms creates these bubbles in the first place, number one. Number two, individuals have to have a, a sense of curiosity and, and, and vigilance to seek out other opinions that just don't comfort their worldview. And number three, the most important is person-to-person -person, uh, interaction, real life. Tactile, vision, smell, breathe, taste, right? Feel, seeing a person eye to eye, marching in the streets, knocking on people's doors, eating a pie and drinking a chai with your neighbor. That is perhaps going to be the, the key because in the absence of that, I'm not entirely convinced that social media in and of itself uh, is going to allow that to happen because you're right. We're now living in a kind of a, a, a post-truth post-fact world where we follow facts and truths that make us feel good. Uh, and especially when that's done from top down, when power, specifically the White House, uh, is making its own facts and making its own truth, that's, you know, post-truth is pre-fascism. That's the lesson we've learned from the 20th century. Uh, when uh, truths become called alternative, uh, when truths become lies and lies become called alternative facts, that's a problem. When any news is deemed critical of power that becomes fake news, that's a problem. Institutions, the truth, facts, language, the press is trashed and abused in service of an ideological agenda, which is very divisive and hateful, which is what we're witnessing right now with the Trump, um, Trump presidency. And then when it has a, a media outlet uh, for propaganda, such as Fox News or Breitbart or all the other you know, right-wing uh, uh, outlets, and also Sinclair Group, which is now taking over local news, which is terrifying. You know, we, we literally have millions of Americans who live in an alternative universe where Russia did not, uh, you know, criminally hack our elections, where Putin apparently is a good guy. Uh, you know, yeah, where apparently Hillary Clinton had a sex slave ring in a, uh, in a Virginia pizzeria. Uh, it's, it's a million dollar question. And the reason why I'm just kind of I'm not giving you specific answers because I think anyone who gives you specific answers is bullshitting you because they just don't know. This is like we're, we're in a transitional process right now where everyone's trying to figure out what to do. Um, but the fact that we're trying to figure it out is very important. And, and at the end of the day, all you can really do is be an individual, one person who decides to be conscientious and, and alter their digital footprint. And in your daily actions, be the America you want this country to become. And that means getting outside of your bubble, taking a deep breath, exhaling, not reducing people into caricatures, having conversations with people you might disagree with, uh, and trying to find some common ground, and also uh, exposing yourself to different viewpoints, different cultures, and different ideas, even those that you disagree with. So at the very least, you know how your fellow Americans are thinking. So you wrote a play uh, on... You wrote a play, The Domestic Crusaders, which was actually the first major play on American Muslims post 9-11. Could you speak about your experience and how it was able to help change stereotypes of Muslims? Sure. You know, I got really lucky, man. Uh, I was a 21-year-old senior at UC Berkeley uh, trying to figure out what to do with the rest of my life. And uh, I was enrolled in Ishmael Reed's short story class. Ishmael Reed is a you know, a literary titan, a MacArthur genius, award-winning poet and, and writer. And I just got into class on a whim. And that was also the year of 9-11. That was my senior year. Uh, and I was part of the Muslim Student Association, and I was a board member. And, you know, after the 9-11 uh, uh, terrorist attack, I had, like, I left school for, like, three weeks just because I was an accidental activist and student leader, uh, right? 
And so it just dominated the rest of the year. And then I had to turn in a, a story uh, for the short, short story class. So I went back to school, turned in the story. And I thought Ishmael Reed would curse me out and say, hey, where the hell have you been for three weeks? But instead he said, meet me after class. And he said, listen, I think you have a talent for dialogue and characters. Don't waste your time in the short story class. Why don't you write me a play? And what are you again? Aren't you like a Muslim? I said, yeah. He goes, listen, I'm black. And I can tell you, we've been going through this for centuries. Uh, your people are going to get hazed uh, for a long time, especially in the media. But the way we fought back oftentimes is through art and culture and storytelling. So why don't you write me a play about what are you again? Like Pakistani? I said, yeah, yeah, Muslim Pakistani. He goes, yeah, write me. You know, like, have you read those traditional American dramas like uh, Fences or Death of a Salesman or Long Day's Journey and the Night? I said, yeah, yeah, write me something like that. I'm like, what? He goes, yeah. You got, you know, he says, write me 20 pages. You have two months. And if you don't write it, you'll fail. Okay, bye. And so I was like, please, God, no, I have no idea what I'm doing. And with my ED money, ED money is money that, you know, uh, ED happens uh, once a year. And, you know, when you're a kid, you used to get like small presents, you get some money. Unfortunately, I do not get any money anymore. I have to give money to the the young kids because they look at me as an uncle now. Old age is a hell of a drug. But with my limited ED money, at that time, I went to um, Borders, which was around, if you guys remember Borders. Uh, bookstore. I went to the drama section. I just picked out two plays. There was a return policy, uh, 15 days. I read it and returned it within 15 days. I did that for like a month and it read like six plays and I started writing. And what that play is about is what I was experiencing. I think what America was experiencing at that time, which was uh, the magnifying glass and the microscope was on Muslim Americans. And you know, this, this century's worth of Orientalism had transformed overnight into a, uh, a cataclysmic battle between Islam versus the West, whatever the Islam was or whatever the West was. And I was transformed overnight into a walking Muslim Wikipedia entry where I was asked to be the cultural ambassador of 1.6 billion Muslims in 1,400 years of Islamic civilization. And I know people now look fondly on the, the years of George W. Bush. Uh, I don't because I remember what was happening. You know, it was the war on terror and the acts of evil and the Patriot Acts and the first Muslim band called NCers. And, you know, people lost their mind. And I always remind people that uh, the Dixie Chicks were these like harmless white, you know, rock and roll country band. Natalie Maines, this, you know, cute, uh, petite uh, lead singer, just, you know, from Texas one time said, I'm ashamed that George W. Bush is from Texas. Bye, y'all. That's all she said. And America lost its mind and made Dixie Chicks like the number one enemy of America. They took steamrollers over their CDs. So in this climate, I, I wrote this story about three generations of a, an American Muslim family, a grandfather, their immigrant uh, parents who had achieved the American dream, and three American-born kids who are forced to come home to the family home and duke it out for an entire day. And the play was called The Domestic Crusaders, a uh, two-act family drama. And, you know, I finished, started for my 21st birthday, finished it for my 23rd birthday and props to Carla Blank and Ishmael Reed, who supported me and said, listen, do a stage reading. I had no idea what the stage reading was. Uh, and, you know, I did a grassroots. Uh, this was pre-Facebook, pre-Twitter. I used whatever was on my disposal. I Googled, you know, uh, how to create a playbill, made a playbill. Uh, used Evites, used my local communities and my friends from All Boys Catholic High School, tapped into my network, uh, you know, auditioned at the local uh, Pakistani Indian restaurant, somehow got people to audition, you know, did the stage reading of the play, uh, put on a five-course buffet at Desi Meal because I knew no one would come otherwise, made it hella cheap, 10 bucks, uh, got people to come, and one thing led to another. Then we did a Berkeley rep where I had to use my furniture for my home for the set because we had no money. And my mother made chai and pima and dal for the, not just my crew, but then the crew of the entire Berkeley Rep because they used to smell the food and line up during lunchtime. And, you know, it, 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 one thing grew to another. And I was finally, when Barack Hussein Obama was running for presidency, I'm like, you know, maybe it's time to bring the domestic crusaders back because everyone had faith in it. But no one, no one in the mainstream took a chance on it, even though it's always made money. And this was, again, mind you, 2004, 2005. So I knew I had to do it myself because if I would wait around for the quote-unquote mainstream, I would still be writing the play. So we did it grassroots. And then for 2009, 9-11, we premiered in New York. And then we published it the next year at McSweeney's. And that play, which people laughed at, 
and said would have no legs is coming to Toronto in 2018 and is published and is being taught at universities and has been mentioned in, um, uh, has been used by a PhD candidates in their thesis and has been mentioned in academic reports. So that's a small win. Um, and I think the, the talent and the creators who are out, you know, working and thriving right now in 2018 will not hopefully have to go through what I had to go through and that generation had to go through. Hopefully it's become easier. Any advice or ideas for those who want to start their own plays, uh, TV shows and movies with the purpose of changing perceptions of Muslims? Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, uh, writers write and creators create, and that's very inspiring, but also very daunting. What I have seen predominantly through my life is you have to have the passion to start and do it yourself. And if you don't do it, you have to do it. You can't wait for anyone else to do it, number one. Uh, number two, realize that yes, there are barriers and challenges. The industry is brutal for everyone. In particular, it becomes a little bit more brutal for people of color and women. That's a given. Your, your test and challenge would be, okay, how do I bypass these challenges? How do I leap over them? Which is exhausting, I know. But there's enough tools at your disposal right now. And I think things are changing where people are more open and receptive to these stories and narratives that have always defined America, but always been excised, right? So it's a, it's, a, it's a good time to jump in because there's a curiosity like, oh yeah, Muslims, we've heard about them. Maybe we should hear from them or maybe they should be the protagonists of their own narrative or maybe they can be protagonists of the American narrative, right? You've seen, and I'm just giving some mainstream examples like Hassan Minaj or Kumail Nanjiani or Aziz Ansari, uh, Iftahaj Muhammad, uh, just give me some examples, right? Like people are, waking up to this still there's challenges but people are waking up to it so it's a great time for anyone to jump in have your have your passion because if there's no passion for it why do it uh, go become a doctor instead you'll have a more stable income and don't be afraid to put in the merch and the masala there's always this fear that if i'm authentic and particular and unique you will not appeal to the quote mainstream and mainstream has always been used as code word for white i disagree i say the universal is found in the specific. And what I've seen is that my white friends who eat really good desi food with the merchant masala, they thank me afterwards. And they go, dude, I had no idea that this is how biryani is supposed to taste. I will never eat crappy restaurant biryani again. So that's a key thing is don't be afraid of adding in the merch and the masala and, and the universal and, and the particularity of your narrative and, and embrace it and have faith in an audience that uh, the universal is found, found in the specific, and if it's a riveting story and a character, they will line up, they will line up. What I would also do is create your own content. You have much more leverage when you are the owner of either a script or a movie. Uh, you wanna, you know, it just, it just puts you way ahead of the game. Uh, you have something to show people, you have something to sell, you have something you own. Um, I would also create a fellowship. I've been very lucky that I actively searched out people I respected and said, please befriend me. Uh, and, you know, that fellowship of like-minded people goes a long way, not just to give you wind in your sails when you're depressed, but also it helps you professionally, I've seen. Um, and final thing I would say is uh, don't, uh, don't follow the Highlander theory. Highlander is a great movie in which a race of immortals run around trying to behead one another. And after they behead one another, like the, the other person, you absorb their powers and you say, there can be only one. In, in minority communities, especially Muslim communities, there's this fear. And this fear is realized due to scarcity of resources, right? That, oh my God, the Pakistani made it. Crap, I can't make it. Oh, they got one Muslim hijabi. I can't make it. I have to kill that Muslim hijabi and take her place. You see what I'm saying? Uh, you know, and it is not, it's not just unique to Muslims. It's any minority group. And so I would say reject the Highlander mentality. There can and will be many, not just one. And especially now you can go outside yourself. I'm speaking as just not just a Muslim, but you see that it's not just Muslims helping Muslims. A Muslim can help a, uh, someone who's LGBT, who can help someone who um, is in the Me Too movement, who can help someone who's in the Black Lives Matter movement, who can help someone who's in the Rust Belt. You're seeing a multicultural coalition of the willing uh, of creators who realize we're all in this together. Uh, and social media, tying it all together, can really help you in promoting your content and creating this community because that's what I had uh, when I was starting off. I was poor, broke, sitting in Fremontistan, California, and I used the internet and social media to literally 
start my career. Uh, without it, I don't think I'd be talking to you right now. There was there was also a short video you created on Islam through the Huffington Post titled uh, Long Story Short. This was summarizing key misunderstood aspects uh, within Islam. And, you know, you, there's also other videos that have been created on, for example, the secret life of Muslims. So how effective are these? And is there any particular approach you found to be more effective in this video space uh, in changing perceptions? Yeah, so it's fascinating. We were so pleasantly surprised that both of those projects that you mentioned have been very effective. And that's another example of how creating positive content and sharing it strategically and wisely through social media, which is again a platform and a tool, can be very beneficial. Uh, you know, that, that, uh, that first five minute video was, is an explainer that we did in one day in Washington, D.C. We talked about like, you know, misconceptions and realities of hijab, Islam, Sharia, uh, you know, uh, Arab Americans and uh, jihad. Uh, we made it fast paced. It was polished. I used a little bit of humor. And for whatever reason, that went viral and got shared like crazy. And not just by Muslims, but like it was used, you know, someone told me that someone told me that their kid's teacher used that as an instructional video to teach their kids about Islam. I was like, what? That happened like just recently. Same thing with Secret Life of Muslims. It's these short videos. I think a series of videos that are like max two to three minutes in length uh, that either profile very interesting American Muslim narratives or, or like vignettes where there's like six or seven of us addressing issues of like representation or like misconceptions uh, done again in kind of a aesthetically pleasing, fast paced, informative, but also light manner uh, using different uh, protagonists, right? Different narratives, very successful. Uh, it was quick, uh, able, you were able to access on your smartphone. You were able to see it on Facebook. It was shareable. And you know, you'd have to sit through like a huge one hour PBS documentary, which I like, no offense to PBS, but it, it, it kind of took advantage of, of the social media trends and how people are now consuming and processing information in the news. And again, became an informational, instructional uh, video for many people. And the responses that we got to Secret Life of Muslims for a lot of folks was, thanks so much, I had no idea. Oh, this is really helpful. This is positive. And we're talking about like non-Muslim. So that was, and I'm glad you mentioned that, those are like, good examples of how putting, you know, creative content out there uh, and sharing it and, and having partners share it and, and can, can be very beneficial. Um, you know, it can be entertaining, but also informative, especially in this age of misinformation, propaganda, fake news and lies. And when there is a wholesale attack on immigrants and people of color and women, this is a, a, a kind of a counter narrative and, and, you know, narratives and culture and stories are honestly the weaponized tip of the spear, man, uh, both for good and for bad, as we've seen. I mean, people underestimate the power of story. The right wing doesn't. ISIS doesn't. ISIS and the right wing and white supremacists really do understand the power of story and narrative and emotions. And um, it's, it's, you know, if you can capture uh, someone's attention and emotion through a compelling narrative and story, that helps change perceptions, which helps change culture, which helps inform better policy, uh, both domestic and foreign. Um, so people should not underestimate the power of a good story and social media as a platform to share that story. On these personal stories, you edited, uh, you co-edited, uh, I Speak for Myself, 45 All-American Men on Being Muslim, which, uh, which was sharing these individual personal stories. What suggestions would you give to people to be more vocal and courageous and creative in sharing their voices, uh, not just Muslims, but also Muslims. Courageous. Interesting. What I would say is, um, you know, it's, it's, I was having a conversation with someone yesterday and, you know, they're not Muslim, but they were just saying, I just, you know, I, I just, I'm afraid and, you know, I'm afraid to share. Uh, at the end of the day, it, it, it comes, you know, it comes to a head. Are you, is it worth it to stay silent? Or is it worth it to, is it, is it better to expose yourself? Let me put it this way. It's safer to stay silent, but you, you bottle up inside. You, you fold upon yourself. You get bitter and angry and frustrated, but you don't want to expose yourself to failure or mockery, right? Versus taking a chance and letting it all out and then exposing yourself 
to potential mockery uh, and failure, but at the same time, taking advantage of this short thing we have called life and putting it, putting it out there. Right. It's like, it's like, it's like, okay, the waves look fantastic. I want to ride the waves, but if I go out, I might drown. So I'm just going to sit here uh, uh, on the beach and look at the waves. And it comes to a point in a person's life where you just have to take the leap. Okay. And I can't make that decision for you, but each person at the end of the day has to make that decision. I have found that exposing yourself is painful. Of course, uh, you put a target sign on your back each time you, you, you say something. And now with social media, you, you know, you, you create content for the world. You expose yourself. Um, but you know, the, the risk is, yeah, you might get beaten down, but the alternative is, is, uh, creating your own prison, uh, where you sit behind bars looking at life as it passes you by, if this is making sense as an analogy. And that to me is far more painful than, uh, you know, being myself, sharing my ideas, sharing my voice, and maybe occasionally getting hit because yes, you might get hit, but you might also get praised. You might also, uh, get respected. You might also be appreciated and your voice might actually empower, uplift and help other people. Meaning that had you not spoken, that person would not have benefited from the gifts that you have inside. you. And so this is why I want to like kind of invite people who are listening to this, who might feel you know, on the fence that, oh, I really have something to say, but I'm too scared. Maybe you have gifts inside you. They haven't realized that someone is waiting to receive and it's up to you to open up and share. If I, if I talk about intra-faith, uh, Muslim to Muslim relationships, how can Muslims further support each other in externally challenging times? No, I'm glad you asked this question. Well, first and foremost, you have to interrupt each other's spaces. You have to get, you have to, you have to walk into each other's spaces. And, and the easiest way to do it is don't wait for anyone else to be the hero, right? Like I, I was in Michigan and someone said, listen, most of us here are like, say if we're Sunni, but we need to like make contact with like Shias or vice versa, what do we do? I'm like, you know, well, what have you done? And she says, well, I've done it. And, but I'm just waiting for everyone else. I'm like, you can't wait for anyone else. Like we can't wait for our parents' generation to help. It's our responsibility. So what you have to do is pick up the phone or literally use your legs and walk into someone's like mosque and be like, hi, I represent like the Sunni community from this district. Uh, we don't reach out to sh Shias. But, hey, can we, like, align and, you know, work together on something? Um, this is, you know, it seems like so elementary, right? But that's what I have seen as works is, is first and foremost, have an awareness that there are many Muslims out there who feel that their greatest enemy is not Islamophobia, but fellow Muslims. Number two, the way we talk about fellow Muslims are different from us is sometimes so injur injurious and, 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 and damaging that it forces people to leave Islam. Uh, third, we, we can't control everyone, but maybe we can have the awareness as individuals and try to do something different. So first you have the awareness. Then you can create the intention. Okay, I intend that at the very least, I want to help build bridges between say like Sunni, 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 Shia, whatever. I'm just giving you an example. Then third, do an action. The action would be very simply reaching out. The best way is a friend. Like, hey man, I know you're Shia and I'm Sunni. What mosque do you go to? And do you can you can you connect me with anyone who's like a leader who, let's say, I, you know, I'm doing a fundraiser for the Rohingya. It'd be awesome if we could get like the Sunnis and Shias to like unite over this 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 like shared value of helping a community that's under, undergoing a genocide. I'm just giving you one example. That simple act of reaching out now creates a connection. And then going back to social media and branding, you could be like you know, this community and this community is uniting for the Rohingya, uh, who is in. And now you've modeled uh, a successful intra-faith partnership, which then creates organic relationships and ties, which can lead to other stuff. You can't wait for anyone to do it. You have to do it. And I think, uh, you know, that's what I've been trying to do also. Like, you know, the, the Shia community invites me to their like conference. I said, sure, I'll go. And, the, 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 you know, I, everyone knew I was Sunni. And we, you know, we talked about like just, what was happening to Muslims in America right now. And the Shia audience members were just very grateful. They like, said, thank you so much. A lot of Sunnis don't come. They don't give us like proper respect. You know, they say horrible things about us. We appreciate you just being here and acknowledging us. Uh, I hope what I'm saying is making sense. Um, and 
is also, forget just Sunni Shia, but also black Muslims, Arab Muslims, South Asian Muslims, immigrant Muslims. You see what I'm saying? These pockets that we started talking about that exist in social media also exist in a reality where we go to our own mosques and our, we go to our own fundraisers and we go to our own house parties and we don't mix. And sometimes it just takes one person to reach out. Uh, that's it. That's all it takes. And, you know, there's a lot of hurt and there's a lot of pain, you know, when it comes to black Muslims and they say, you know, you guys are so racist against us and Desi Muslims and immigrant Muslims and Arab Muslims. But uh, our generation has the ability to create a new narrative. And I've seen that when that happens, it happens very easily in the sense that you just need that initial step uh, for the intra-faith alliances. Like you just need a phone call. Whereas maybe with our parents' generation, because of the, those deep divides, it needs more than a few, it needs several phone calls. For us, we just need a phone call. And I see people like responding. So, you know, historically, uh, and even today in the United States, disadvantaged and minority groups have come together to form lobbies and think tanks in order to politically advance their goals and create a favorable rapport with other communities. How how can these think tanks, going back to this notion of media and social media, better leverage social media and other similar outlets uh, in today's world? Because I feel sometimes they're not as effective as uh, they can be. The problem with a lot of these think tanks, man, is, how do I say this? They're trying their hardest. First and foremost, they're trying to be professional. Many of them now finally are professional with the professional setup. Um, uh, they're trying to get professional talent, men and women with experience. That was a challenge also. Because a lot of it was, you know, and I want to be sympathetic, a lot of it was ad hoc. Like, we're desperate. We're doing four different things. We need a, an organization. And a lot of our parents' generation, you know, God bless them, were like, we'll do it. You know what I'm saying? So I don't want to knock them also. Uh, so first and foremost, we're just becoming professional, a professional organization, uh, number one. Number two, a lot of them are still trying to figure out a precise mission statement. Too many of them are too, doing too many different things. So that has also been a challenge. Uh, number three, uh, you, well, it's a recurring theme, bubbles. Based on the ideology or the funding stream, a lot of these groups have been, I think, they, they straightjacket themselves and don't necessarily reach out to the right people. They reach out to only those people who might share their same religious and political outlook and that has limited them, if that makes sense. Uh, and what I've seen is the ones who are successful are the ones who maintain their philosophy and their values and their core values, but are also pragmatic and diplomatic and know how the game is played. It's a game. You need to know how the political system works. You need to know how the economic system works. You need to know how the media system works. And, and you need that type of savvy. Uh, and you also need that type of willingness to reach across the aisle and engage with people that might disagree with you profoundly on certain religious and political topics. But, but if you're smart, you realize, you know, seven out of 10 things we agree on. So let's have a partnership, right? And I'll just give you one example that is topical. Like, uh, oh, Muslim, many Muslim groups, we won't talk to that group that's a Jewish group. We won't talk to that group that's a LGBT group. We won't talk to that person because of X, Y, and Z. So you, you've created these ridiculous stream litmus tests that have made it almost impossible for you to engage with people who, who live in the world in a complex world. And, and you keep kind of going to these low-hanging fruits, people who completely agree with you, but who nonetheless perhaps do not represent, for better or worse, how many people live, right? And it goes against the lack of expertise and professionalism. And so this is like, you know, this is an institutional problem, which thankfully a young generation of people who is educated, has experience, you know, a lot of people who I know are my friends realize this is the problem and are now... And now, like investing in it. And that also goes with, you know, building relationships with media outlets, creating credible messengers, uh, having the right person go on CNN, or MSNBC, uh, bringing some value beyond just uh, your very narrow concerns, uh, if you know what I mean. Um, and, and, you know, and also I would say, and this, you know, might offend some people, it's also like just this, this dabbling, if you will, of, uh, this mixture of like foreign politics and foreign ideologies that end up hijacking the American Muslim space. Does that make sense, right? It's like, are you for American Muslims, American civil rights, American this? And if so, how come then you have a toe in 
Syria and a toe in Pakistan and a toe in, you know what I'm saying? A toe in Palestine. And so that type of focused professionalism with the mission statement, with qualified men and women working who, who have relationships in, in the media, in the political world, who are able to then implement it, it's, it's a top-down, bottom-up kind of uh, approach that is needed for these think tanks and institutions and foundations, which is getting better. But I think we can all say it was very severely lacking. And again, I want to just give respect to the people who started in the first place because many of them did it ad hoc, and at least it was something. You mentioned journalism. Any advice for those who want to pursue journalism? And here I mean without you know, having any preconceived agenda or bias, but are actually in the minority when it comes to the media? Look, every field, no field is perfect. Every field has its challenges. Politics is dirty. Media is dirty. Big business is dirty. Tech is dirty. Finance is dirty, okay? But that doesn't mean everyone is corrupt. Everyone is racist. It's impossible to succeed. That just means that there's challenges. When it comes to media and journalism, it is an ocean of whiteness, unfortunately. The gatekeepers, are very white. That does not mean they're evil. That does not mean they're bad. That does not mean they're racist. If you just look at the numbers and the studies and the stats from Hollywood to publishing to cable news, the reality is a lot of the gatekeepers and a lot of the men and women who frame uh, the stories and the narratives and the heroes and the villains of America do not represent the majority of Americans. That being said, that is not an excuse for, say, someone who belongs to a minority group not to jump in. Yes, you will have some challenges, but I would say, I can only say what I did. I made a decision that I would write whatever I want to write, how I want to write, when I want to write, and I would be independent. If that meant taking a long road for a long-term return on investment to maintain my integrity and my independence, I would take it. I wrote a lot of the stuff for free. I put it out there, and I said, if I crank out quality work at a prolific rate, inshallah, God willing, the universe will respond. And slowly but surely, that's what happened. I did one article. I was sitting in Fremont. I had a broken Fujitsu laptop with a big-ass yellow Ethernet cable attached. No one knew me. Still no one knows me. And I found like some outlets that are respected. And what I would do is I would find the outlets that you respect, the ones that you're fans of, go to their uh, About Us section or you know submission section, read it carefully, find out exactly what they want, respect the process, go to the emails, create a respectfully persistent approach where you, in a you know a elevator pitch, explain who you are and why you have the expertise to talk about this issue. And then what I did is I always gave them something. And what I gave them was content. I said, here's an article. This is you know, a topical issue. I think you guys would like it. Uh, the article's attached, let me know. And that's how I got my first article published. And then they got back to me and they're like, if you have anything else, let me know. I'm like, okay. Two days later, I did another one. And then slowly but surely, in a period of like six months, I'd published like 30 pieces and people start calling me a social media journalist. I'm like, what's that? And then I used uh, social media in particular to create a mailing list. And I said, okay, I'll just send this stuff to a mailing list. The worst that will happen is someone says, take me off your mailing list, right? And it rarely happened. And I, I kept pursuing those outlets that I respected. I was rejected time and time and time and time again, but I kept at it. And then finally, I remember for like my first piece in Salon, I tried to get in Salon for two years. And this guy said, if you promise to stop emailing me, I'll give you the email contact of the essays editor. And I'm like, sure. And then something breaking happened in the news. I felt that I was qualified to write about. I wrote it. I attached it. I sent it to her. She loved it. She said, if you have anything else, something else happened. And boom, you created a relationship. So now what you do is you have a portfolio. Uh, you have one link, two links, three links. Uh, you have contacts. Be respectfully persistent. It's all about relationships and reputation. Don't be a mouse because if you're a mouse in a doormat, no one knows you. And if you're not passionate about your work, you die quietly. At the same time, the opposite extreme is I am dope and the universe owes me. The universe doesn't owe you anything. And so I've seen these two extremes for young journalists and writers, right? They're like, I'm awesome. You should publish me. If you're not, you suck. How do you think that turns out? Yeah. Not good. Yeah. So, so respectful persistence. And, and creating your own content and then in, in approaching those outlets, first and foremost, that you respect, reading what they like, seeing their tone, uh, you know, and, and also being topical is key. You increase the percentage of, of your piece getting out there if uh, something's breaking news. Um, and and you, know, you can either wait your whole life for a chance, 
but I just did it. And so that's one way to do it from the op-ed section or the interview section. The beautiful thing with technology nowadays is you don't need to wait for anyone. You can be your own publisher. You can be your own content creator. There's Facebook Live, there's YouTube. You can create your videos and just throw it out there, right? Like what's the worst that'll happen? Uh, you know, refine, tweak, refine, tweak, refine and tweak. And then also you get a, you know, through social media, you now have a seat at the global table because on Twitter, for example, or Instagram or Facebook, if you create that content, guess what? You now have a global audience. And we've seen time and time again how people who are, did not go to journalism school, I didn't go to journalism school, who don't have an MFA, I don't have an MFA, nonetheless are able to impact the, the global conversation and create careers uh, by virtue of their own work because you are creating a work product out there. So that's the type of advice I would give folks. You know, thinkers, uh, thinkers and writers often reflect about a vision for the future. Could you name a specific objective? Perhaps you see the world achieve, the world can achieve, let's say in 25 to 50 years. And what insights and suggestions would you offer that might help them achieve this vision? Sure. That's a, that's a huge question, man. That's a thesis question. You know, I think it's like a mission statement is always good, right? Like, so I want to share and write stories that are by us for everyone, by American Muslim communities for global diverse audiences with the hope of entertaining and bridging the divides. And a vision that I have very specifically is my children uh, who are brown-skinned, cute kids who are being raised Muslim. They will be able to bring their biryani to the American table and place it next to the meatloaf. And they'll have appetizers, they'll have the main course, they'll have the dessert, they'll have a chai, they'll have everything. And once they've made it, inshallah, God willing, their job is then to turn around and see that community member or that neighbor who is downtrodden and raise them up and bring them to the table. And to increase the spaces and bring in more chairs so that every kid, regardless of their religion, ethnicity, gender, uh, has a chance uh, to eat at the American buffet. That's the big vision that I have because you don't want double standards, you want equal standards. You, you want the, the dream of America to be experienced uh, by all or to be reached by all. And we have a long way to go there, right? Gender is a setback, poverty is a setback, religion is a setback, race is a setback. But the way we can go about doing it is modeling that behavior uh, in our individual life and also the, the small uh, positive footprints we create in our families and our communities. And so uh, one way I would do it is bum rushing the show, uh, you know, when it comes to narratives and storytelling. If, if you are not allowed uh, inside uh, the theater, create your own theater. Uh, if you are not allowed to be a wizard behind the curtain, become your own wizard. The best way to do that is to create your own content and become the protagonist of your own narrative. If you're not writing your own story, your story is always being written for you by others. And so nowadays with technology and this kind of multicultural approach that we have, uh, we see uh, a multicultural coalition of the willing. So first and foremost, create that vision, uh, share that vision, because sometimes that's what people need is a vision and they need to see it articulated, right? And in a story, in a play, in a movie, faith sometimes is not enough. It needs something tangible to hang its hat on. So a Hassan Minhaj and a Ittahaj Muhammad in, in flesh and living reality is an example of, oh crap, look, they've made it. Maybe I too can make it. Uh, you also want to see this representation, not just when it comes to the media, but also political representation. Uh, if we are a representative democracy uh, for everyone, how come historically it has been only 90% white with one president who is black, right? So I want more and more people running uh, for elected office representing the makeup of this country, more and more stories make up the makeup of this country, more lawyers, uh, more journalists, uh, more entrepreneurs. And, and, and then the vision is for all of us to have a seat at that table. Um, that I think will be key and, 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 you know, tying everything together that mean that can only happen is if you take your head out of the sand, pop your little cocoon, step outside it and disrupt other spaces. That means being uncomfortable. That means having uncomfortable conversations. That means having your toes stepped on. 
that it means that means not having cotton candy uh, because it's quick and fast and makes you feel good, but ends up rotting your teeth. That means you know enjoying a savory meal that takes time to digest with the merch and myself. Mujahid, thanks again. Thank you so much for uh, the conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to today's episode with Canada Insights. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe or follow us on social media for updates on future episodes. If you've already subscribed, please leave us a rating or review. It does help new people find the podcast. I'm Sahil Badruddin, your host. And for a transcript of this interview and others, visit my website at sahilbadruddin.com.